Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September 11th. It's a rare secret society, conspiracy nut, deep web stew of strangeness. Hi everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Paranoid Podcaster. My name is Hanne Nijtmans, and I am a PhD candidate at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And this podcast, the Paranoid Podcaster, is actually about me and my PhD project, because I'm really focusing on uh, contemporary conspiracy culture in the United States, focusing especially on the period between 2012 and now. And I will say a little bit more why I focus on this particular time period uh, a little bit later. But first, I may want to explain a little bit more about my project. And the whole, this podcast is kind of aimed at tracing the progress uh, that I make throughout my PhD and tracing some of the process as well, uh, how my thinking evolves, but also some of the main questions that you can ask yourself about um, contemporary conspiracy culture. So often when people think about uh, paranoia, people think about this idea of, um, you know, delusional right-wingers, um, particular right-wing conspiracies, which is a bit of an outdated idea of what a conspiracy is. Um, but also people think about, you know, uh, QAnon, uh, the storming of the Capitol, um, satanistic pedophiles, Illuminati, um, how some people may think that the world is run by lizard people, uh, but also the flirtations of paranoia uh, by people like Donald Trump. Um, or may, perhaps you may think of uh, anti-vaxxers and how, and sort of the contemporary conspiracy about how Bill Gates wants to insert microchips into our arms um, and how it's also sort of connected to 5G reception and stuff like that. Um, though this is sort of a kind of conspiracy culture that a lot of people do, in, do quite interesting research into. Um, but I kind of want to stay away from that. And I actually want to focus on something else. I want to focus on how uh, conspiracy culture manifests itself in contemporary arts and culture uh, in the United States. So um, and with that, I mean that I really focus on fiction and sort of fictional narrations of conspiracy culture in uh, contemporary US society. So um, where does this obsession with conspiracy theories come from, from also in these fictional narratives? Um, what do these um, contemporary conspiracies look like? Uh, what do these conspiracies look like, particularly in these sort of fictional accounts? Uh, who are usually the people behind the curtain? What are people concerned with? Um, and I guess, uh, what are some of the social conditions that they come from? Like, why is it that um, these kind, this kind of conspiracy culture happens, especially now? Um, and I'm also very interested in thinking about whether uh, they have some kind of political function beyond sort of um, the everyday conspiracies that we talk about. So um, sort of a conspiracy novel might think differently about uh, conspiracy than uh, you know a news, news article. And then if these fictional, what's, what happens when you fictionalize it? Is it then also uh, a comment on conspiracy culture? Because uh, I think that in sort of culture and art, there's usually this sort of extra layer. So it's not just also part of conspiracy culture, but it also uh, it takes to another step back and also comments on conspiracy culture. Um, so hopefully that's not too meta for you. But um, I think in that sense, it's interesting to look at sort of the political purpose and who are the bad guys in these conspiracies. Um, sometimes it's technology, sometimes it's evil corporations. Sometimes it's authoritarian governments, and I think those kind of different actors also say something about, you know, the state of contemporary American culture and why these kinds of narratives are uh, interesting and why they've become so popular. Um, and actually, this sort of conspiracy culture um, is really not new. Uh, think, for example, of uh, the novels of Thomas Pynchon or Don DeLillo. You also have television series like The X-Files. Um, you have conspiracy films like uh, Three Days of the Condor or Parallax View. Those are, I think, mostly from the 1970s. So um, it's not an entirely new tradition, <laughs> but it's actually built on things that are already existing. So uh, what is new about contemporary conspiracy culture? 
uh, why is there this sort of renewed interest? And I think one of the main hypotheses that I have right now at this stage of the project is that um, contemporary conspiracy um, culture is definitely sort of intertwined with the rise of the podcast and especially the fictional podcast, because it seems to be the case that um, a lot of the contemporary fictional podcasts sort of center around conspiracies. And you might, you know, want to take a look at your um, podcast app or provider and see what kind of uh, fictional podcasts are popular or interesting or the ones that pop up. And no doubt that you will find that a lot of them actually um, are centered around conspiracies or are aimed at sort of uncovering mysteries or um, there's also this always or quite often, almost always, there seems to be this kind of conspiratorial uh, vibe going on. And I, I this struck me as something that was very interesting and something that I really wanted to further explore, which is kind of the basis of this um, PGC project. So, so the reason that I actually started with uh, 2012 is because in 2012 you have uh, the start of one fictional podcast, Welcome to Night Vale, that has been very formative for the fictional podcast genre. Uh, it was actually, it's this sort of very weird, edgy podcast um, that by now has, um, well, it has been going on for almost 10 years. Um, but it's really, it has this very big cult following, uh, it had this very big Tumblr community. Uh, but the main premise of the podcast is that it is a town in which every conspiracy theory is true. So it's a very weird podcast, um, but it has become hugely popular and has million, more than a million viewers, or viewers, I mean listeners, obviously, um, per episode. So this is sort of a very formative podcast for the, for the fictional podcast genre. So um, that's kind of why I start there. But then uh, a, bit, a little bit later, you also have Serial, which is um, in 2014, uh, a true crime podcast that sort of was the first podcast to really go mainstream. So um, it was true crime and journalist Sarah Koenig is looking into a cold case, looking into um, a particular murder case and seeing, you know, what happened and trying to figure out uh, by talking to, you know, uh, people involved with the case and following up on leads through trying to figure out what actually happened. And um, it's basically this just sort of model that I would argue is actually very helpful for conspiracy culture. Uh, you have this female researcher or journalist that takes you along in their research project um, and tries to figure out what happens or what is happening with a particular issue. Which, you know, may sound familiar since you're listening to me uh, pretty much doing the same thing. Um, though obviously this is more uh, academically, um, you know, uh, or it's, it's coming more from an academic perspective than anything else. And I think one thing that is curious about Serial is that there's a particular open-endedness to it. Um, serial is really more about the process. You know, the researcher takes you along for the ride, and it's more about doing this research product together than actually about sort of having this final end product. Because Serial, I mean, spoiler alert, is kind of a whodunit, but you don't really know who has actually done it in the end, which is kind of curious. And this open-endedness is actually something that um, you see more often in conspiracy culture. For example, Thomas Pynchon's The Crying of Lot uh, 49 um, is really famous for its open end. Like, you never really know who's sort of the man behind the curtain. You never know who's really behind the conspiracy. And I think that is kind of curious about the podcast format. And at the same time, um, I would actually argue that there's something distinctive about the podcast because it's so, so much embedded in the digital media landscape. Um, that you're also kind of encouraged to do your own research. So some podcasts may have, you know, as a final uh, thingy, they will say, um, keep looking or um, do your own research or something like that, which is kind of very conspiratorial and something that's very much allowed by the podcast. So I think that is that's sort of an interesting feature of uh, contemporary uh, conspiracy culture and the podcast uh, in particular. So, um, and I think... Something else is happening, uh, why the podcasts are so central to my research, is that uh, these narratives that are being told in podcasts, they actually also are increasingly finding their way into different media. Uh, you have, for example, uh, podcasts that are made into novels, like uh, the novels of Welcome to Night Vale or Podcast Rabbits, 
or uh, some are made into television series like uh, Archive 81 or uh, Homecoming. And um, yeah, what you kind of see is that these stories that are told in this podcast are, are really expanding out of their original sphere. So the podcast as a starting point may not be as weird as it seems. Um, but nevertheless, I would say there are also a lot of other media in which you can find this contemporary conspiracy culture. Uh, think, for example, of the television series Mr. Robot um, that really starts out with um, its main character saying, you know, uh, there is a conspiracy bigger than all of us. Um, people, there's only a small group of people that hold all the power and are, they are conspiring against us. Uh, the top 1% of the top 1%. Or uh, think of a Netflix series, Inside Job, which is a very strange animated uh, workplace comedy on Netflix, um, which is basically about the shadow government. Um, and also, all conspiracy theories are true. Or you can even look at uh, Thomas, <laughs> oh, well, Thomas Pynchon's latest novel, Bleeding Edge, um, which is about sort of post-9-11 American... Um, you know, American government, but also post 9-11, how it is to live in a world where 9-11 happened. Uh, you have, you know, a little bit about 9-11 conspiracy theories, but also the role of the internet, virtual reality. All these interesting questions keep popping up. And uh, yeah, that's basically why I'm talking to you right now today and um, what I aim to investigate in my research. So um, this podcast will take you along on my quest, <laughs> my quest of figuring out what exactly is happening in contemporary conspiracy culture. Um, and yeah, it will be a long quest. It will be around four years. So uh, I'm not sure about the interval in which I will be posting these podcasts, but um, this is at least the first step. Um, this may also lead to the question, will I myself become paranoid throughout this entire process? Um, or will I be able to keep my head straight and be a researcher? Um, and I think um, it's also interesting to see how my research will uh, progress over these years. And um, so the idea is that I won't just be talking to you like I am right now, because honestly, I personally find that a little bit boring uh, to listen to. But hopefully I will also have interviews with uh, scholars, maybe podcast makers, potentially even podcast listeners. Uh, maybe I'll have some discussions with some of my peers or friends about particular media objects. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I might, you know, do some media analysis. So I will look into perhaps some of the podcasts that I uh, will be talking about a little bit more today or uh, some of the other media forms that I've just sort of briefly introduced to you. And uh, perhaps, and this will not surprise me, Maybe I'll take you along in some of my research rabbit holes uh, or obsessions with other uh, things that are usually temporary. For example, um, what exactly happened during 9-11 and how are people talking about it? Or um, the JFK assassination and, and sort of the immense um, media attention that came after. Because there are sort of different waves of media attention for the JFK assassination. So you have, of course... Um, Oliver Stone's movie about J called JFK, uh, you have Don DeLillo's Libra, and then very recently you sort of had a re-emergence of all these narratives because uh, Oliver Stone made a new movie about JFK. So it's like these conversations just keep happening and happening and I'm, I'm very curious what exactly is happening um, here and like how that translates into our understanding of contemporary conspiracy culture. So uh, don't be surprised if a lot of that happens to also um, feature into this podcast, but we'll, we'll see what happens and we'll see where it goes. Um, but first, I do actually have uh, something in mind for today, because um, I think I want to give you a little bit of a taste of what, me, what sort of drew me into this research. So uh, I want to introduce you to some of the podcasts that I have been talking about a little bit. Um, in, and so the first episode I will call The Sound of Paranoia. And um, it's kind of taking inspiration from the audio essay. And so, yeah, I hope you will enjoy a little tour into um, the podcast. So 
for this episode, I will focus on four podcasts. I will focus on uh, Welcome to Night Vale, Sandra, Tennis, and Rabbits. And kind of the main question of this part is, uh, what does paranoia sound like? So the first podcast is Welcome to Night Vale. Every desert community where the sun is hot, the moon is beautiful, and mysterious lights pass overhead while we all pretend to sleep. Welcome to Night Vale. Welcome to Night Vale is described by its producers as a town where every conspiracy is true and people just go on with their lives. Night Vale is a small imaginary town in the middle of the desert where all kinds of unlikely events happen. Citizens are plagued with glow, cl- glow clouds that rain down animals or a, ty- uh, or a war with, ti- with a tiny civilization that lives under the pin retrieval area of Blind 5 of the local bowling alley. <laughs> That's a hard sentence. Um, Nightfield community uh, radio host Cecil Palmer narrates these events as if they are completely normal. There's a reason why everyone's switching to Sandra, the world's most responsive and intelligent personal assistant and knowledge navigator. Here you go, Dad. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Grandpa. It's a shiny black cube. It's Sandra. She talks to you. Oh, no, I've heard of this. Come on, just try her out. She can help you lead a better, healthier, more productive life. She can get you where you need to be or answer questions you never knew you had. Ask her something. Like what? Like, uh, Sandra, what's the temperature in uh, Bratislava? Currently, it's 77 degrees and mostly sunny in Bratislava. Chance of rain, 0%. Now see, what do I care about the temperature in Bratislava? Where is Bratislava, by the way? Ask Sandra. Sandra? Where's Bratislava? Bratislava is on the western border of Slovakia, near Austria. It's the capital. Okay, so she knows geography. Big deal. That she remembers, Dad. That's what's so cool about her. Like, Sandra, what were we just talking about? First you asked me the weather in Bratislava, and then you wanted to know where Bratislava was located. Hmm. Sandra, how about some music? Here's a song you might like. You know, your mom always used to play this song. How did Sandra know that? She's really intuitive, Dad. You love Sandra. You love Sandra. (laughs) So the next podcast is Sandra. Um, And you just heard introduction to that. Um, Sandra is about Helen, who takes a job at a tech company called Orbital Teledynamics. And that company has created a hugely popular virtual assistant called Sandra which is a comparative service to Amazon's Alexa. Helen soon finds out that Sandra is made up by hundreds of Sandras, which are actual people that are answering the questions addressed to Sandra. Throughout the series, Helen uncovers the problematic nature of the device and starts to understand orbital teledynamics as an evil corporation that conspires against its consumers, making them dependent on the device and harvesting their data. Some stories have layers, history, detailed recorded mass sightings, grainy videos, blurry photographs, and countless witnesses. Are these stories, with their multiple first-hand accounts, years, decades, and sometimes even centuries of so-called evidence, more likely to be true? Sometimes we come across something different, a genuine mystery. 
Something that appears to have no recorded history, no website, and no public record at all. Something uniquely strange and mysterious. This is one of those stories. So the next podcast is Public Radio Alliance's Tennis. Tennis revolves around podcaster and journalist Nick Silver, who comes intrigued in the tennis conspiracy. While tennis is fictional, the show never quite says so and intriguingly supplements fictional elements with historically accurate references. Rabbits. Rabbits is narrated by Carly Parker, who is trying to find her missing friend Yumiko. Yumiko suddenly disappeared, and the only clue that Carly has is that her friend has been absorbed into playing a particular alternate reality game, or ARG. In Carly's own words, um, the following is happening. I was starting to believe that my friend Yumiko had become what they call a player, or a participant, in a very unique alternate reality game. But the game Yumiko had been playing was different, special. There was evidence that she may have been involved in something called, well, this is where things get kind of interesting. You see, the game Yumiko may have been playing doesn't have a name, officially. It's kind of a, well, it's a rare secret society, conspiracy nut, deep web stew of strangeness. To put it as simply as possible, she was playing something that she and the other participants referred to simply as nine. Just nine. They used Roman numerals to indicate the number, I, X. It's called nine because it's the ninth iteration of the modern version of an ancient game. A game that has been happening in one form or another for a very long time. A game where the stakes aren't early release video game access, special in-game cheat codes, or bonus footage of your favorite television show. In this game, the stakes are much higher. If you believe some of the more salacious rumors, the outcome of this particular game can be as serious and as dangerous as anything in real life. Real life and real death. So the game revolves around riddles, coincidences, numbers and codes, traditionally hidden in well in real-world places like old arcade games, car engines, bathroom stalls, museums, and old library books. But um, Carly is not just looking into real-world places, but there's also a clear sort of um, you know uh, technological element to it because she also relies on uh, the internet, especially the dark net and protected servers, but also strange app, apps that sort of appear onto phones out of nowhere and officially do not exist and sort of hidden message boards. These podcasts build on a rich tradition of conspiracy culture in the United States. Uh, for example, the novels of Pynchon and the Lillo, um, like Libra that explores the conspiracy surrounding the shooting of uh, the JFK or uh, the crying of, crying of Lot uh, 49. They also sort of have clear commonalities with rabbits. Um, because in rabbits, the female protagonist spends the entire novel trying to uncover a conspiracy related to the um, postal service. And the connection between Night Vale and Pinch's novel is even more evident. One of Night Vale's episodes, as well as a book containing episode transcripts and editor's notes, is titled The Buying of Lot 37, in which an anonymous bidder uh, buys the main narrator of the show, Cecil. So these connections are quite clear, um, but they become even more clear if you also listen to um, these segments. For example, this scene from Tennis. I stepped out of the Pacific Northwest Story studio and ran into a tall man in an elegant suit. The man opened the rear driver's side door of a long silver Mercedes. When I saw who was sitting in the back of that car, 
I turned on my phone's voice recorder. I'm recording this. I figured that might be the case. I also dialed 911. You're not gonna need the police, Nicodemus. Please, get in the car. Really? I've seen three days at the Condor. Okay. I'll walk across the street to that coffee shop. Alone. Yes, alone. Three Days of Condor is a 1975 conspiracy movie from Sidney Pollack, in which CIA agent Joe Turner comes back into his office after lunch to find all of his colleagues murdered. And the film is mostly about him trying to outwit the CIA and trying to survive its dirty tactics. Notably, uh, scholar and literary critic and theorist um, Frederick Jameson has analyzed this movie in his book The Geopolitical Aesthetic in which he argues that the film uses communication and information technologies to convey paranoia. In the 1975 film, this is the telephone. With Nick Silver's comments about the movie, he actually links Turner's frantic escape of CIA agents in Three Days of the Condor to his own encounter with Tesla Nova Corporation leader Cameron Ellis, which makes us as a listener even more paranoid. Like Tennis, Rabbits also has a lot of connections to older, other media forms, considering, for example, the following passage. An ARG, or alternate reality game, is defined by Wikipedia as an interactive networked narrative that uses the real world as a platform and uses transmedia storytelling to deliver a story that may be altered by players' ideas or actions. Some common examples of this type of game include viral marketing stunts, expanding the story worlds of existing IPs or intellectual properties, movies or video games, for example, in order to provide additional narrative value for users. The popular ARGs, I Love Bees and The Beast were created to promote the video game Halo and the film AI, respectively. There are historical touchstones, precursors, and inspirations for this type of storytelling, such as John Fowle's novel The Magus, Delaney's novel Triton, The Beatles' Paul is Dead Thing, Choose Your Own Adventure books, and of course, popular role-playing games like Dungeons and & Dragons and their modern video game equivalents, Skyrim, Dragon Age, Mass Effect, and many more. There's a long, proud history of ARGs, from Orson Welles' infamous War of the Worlds to The Last Broadcast, The Blair Witch Project, and Oceanic 815. We're excited and occasionally terrified with the added possibility that these kinds of horrors or conspiracies might be real. Or at the very least, we're excited when we experience fleeting moments while playing long. Moments that blur the line between the real world and the game. One particularly interesting connection for the podcast is Orson Welles' radio play The War of the Worlds that indeed, that indeed has successfully blurred the lines between um, a cultural object and a real world as, alleged, as allegedly some people truly believe that there was an alien invasion on US soil. Although others have you know, more recent research and or maybe not necessarily research but other research has actually indicated that not that many people bought into the entire show of uh, War of the Worlds. But nevertheless, I think it's an interesting example of blurring fact and fiction um, as a sort of an example to work with. And uh, to some extent, this is also what Tannis and Rabbits do, as they, refer they were also refer to real-life events and conspiracies and blend them with uh, the fictional content of the podcast. One of the many ways in which they also do that is by referring to Nick Silver as Terry Miles' nephew, uh, who, as they call it, sound alike, while Terry Miles is obviously playing the character uh, of Nick Silver, so they kind of mess with that quite often. And it's never, yeah, also if you look in, onto the website, it's never really clear, like, um, well, it, I mean, if you look into it quite well, it is fairly clear that this is happening, but on the other hand, it's also... Uh, maybe not clear enough, because some people may mistake it for it being actually true, um, which is kind of curious. But also, if you look into, you know, uh, the podcast, um, 
in the show they also see that they made a novel and the novel is obviously fiction so that may also clarify some things the main plot of rabbits is also related to mk ultra which is one of the most infamous cia initiatives in the 1950s uh, up until the early 1960s that used lsd to experiment with the possibility of mind control and allegedly tried to find an alternate an ultimate truth serum mk ultra plays a vital tone in the narrative and uh, a spin-off operation from it um, supposedly has used a suboral frequency blast to erase the memory of one of the main characters. So in that sense, it's also very prevalent. about the role of communication technologies are not new in paranoid narratives. Pynchon's The Crying Flood 49, as I mentioned earlier, focuses on the secret postal service, and The Lillo's Running Dog revolves around an old film that supposedly contains potentially an erotic scene from Hitler's bunker. However, um, what makes recent podcasts different from earlier forms of conspiracy culture is the importance of the internet and the rise of tech companies. With the rise of the internet, the nature of the technology in tech companies also changes. And uh, Sandra aptly illustrates some of the dangers of an AI technology like Sandra, or supposedly AI, um, the Alexa-like device. Um, because people become completely dependent on their Sandras, as the device orders their food, allergy medicine, makes their doctor's appointments, and even functions as some kind of therapist. The company uses data uh, with highly effective targeted advertising, Furthermore, the Sandras have access to almost all information about each user, including their address, credit card numbers, bank accounts, phone numbers, search history, and it's really easy to abuse this information. And naturally, this is what happens in the narrative. So Helen, the main character, acting as Sandra, eventually starts interfering in the lives of users. Leave the bird alone. Excuse me? Step away from the bird, Mike, and put the rock back where you found it. Leave it alone, and listen to me for a second. You two do not belong together. Whoa, whoa, is this thing seriously criticizing our relationship? Three of your top ten contacts have purchased the book Surviving Toxic People by Dr. Ellen Sherwood in the past month. You can see that? Natalie, listen to me. Has Mike proposed to you? How in the... Not yet. All right, good. I can see from Mike's browsing history that he's thinking about it. Do not get married. Ooh, Here's what off. you need to do right now. Go back to your house and go through your things. Decide who gets what. Say your goodbyes and never see each oh other again. Oh my god, will you shut that fucking thing off so we can go? You don't belong together. You're not listening to each other. And Mike sounds like an awful human being. And you should just end it right now. Holy shit. Oh my god, look, the, the bird just flinched. It, it just flinched. Exactly. It's not dead. Listen to me. You know what, I'm... While you would expect that Helen is reprimanded for this kind of behavior, her boss actually praises her initiative and suggests that she has made Sandra indispensable for Natalie. So how dangerous this information is appears when Helen wants to stop a psychopath named Ted. Her colleague Naya has multiple su suggestions on how to stop Ted, like uh, wiping his credit cards, killing him or sending him a box of scorpions. And that these suggestions from Naya are actually things that uh, the people at Sandra could do illustrates the incredible power that comes from having access to all of these data. And this raises the question, what if this power gets abused? In Tennis, you also have this sort of idea of technology. Um, and Tennis, well, what is Tennis is kind of the main question of the podcast, and remains undefined for most of the first season, but it seems to be some kind of spiritual or ancient power located somewhere in the Pacific Northwest and generates all kinds of weird events, disappearances, and erratic behavior. The two main antagonists uh, are um, two big corporations. So the first is a mysterious corporation, Tesla Nova, which does research in the area where tennis is. The work they do is top secret, and many of Tesla Nova's former employees disappear. The other corporation, Parzivella, is a shady corporation with a lot of money that offers people extremely expensive ways to supposedly fine tennis, um, and Parzivella is possibly responsible for multiple deaths. 
uh, a lot of the research that moves the narrative forward was actually done by hacker Meerkatnip or MK. And the role of the internet becomes especially clear in the following segment. When I was younger, I was obsessed with UFOs, Bigfoot, and the Bermuda Triangle. For me, the worst part of growing up was the slow realization that these things were probably, almost certainly in fact, not real. But I've never stopped wanting all of that stuff to be real. And I feel like that's true for most of us. We want to believe, to stumble into something genuinely mysterious. I suppose that's why I fell in love with the Tannis myth right away. It just felt different, richer somehow. I don't know. I keep waiting for something to pull back the curtain to explain away the enigma that is Tannis. But so far, the web of mystery just keeps getting deeper and more complicated. I'd become worried that the internet was draining all the mystery from the world. But after this week's story, I may have to rethink my position. Between the deep web bulletin boards, the Markovian parallax denigrate, and the elaborate strangeness of Reddit A858, the internet just became a whole lot more mysterious. The interesting thing is that the mystery that Nick's talk about, uh, the mysteries that Nick talks about, actually exists. And as such, Tannis effectively blurs fiction and non-fiction. So, for example, the Markovian Pelagrex Denigrate is, for ex is an internet ex mystery. It is a series of hundreds of messages posted on the Usenet in 1996. Uh, wow, that was hard. <laughs> the messages, which appear to be gibberish, were all posted with the subject line Markovian Parallax Denigrate. And with rabbits, um, it kind of like tennis, uh, it is very interesting how little information the narrator, uh, Corley Park, can find on the internet. But the research is really reliant on the internet for a large part. So uh, when she gets help in trying to find someone who has been involved in the disappearance of her friend Yumiko, uh, we see one of the most insidious sides of technology in the current age and surveillance. So you have the character of uh, the real Batman 38 who's actually helping her out um, to figure some things out. And you can hear that in the following segment. It's like a lot of data. It is. But like, you can't possibly parse it all yourself. Me? No. That's Mona's job. Mona, your computer? My algorithm, yes. What does Mona do? She makes this happen. He pressed a few buttons on one of his keyboards, and the monitors suddenly all changed. They became part of a large map. It was a map of the city, with all kinds of symbols and colors. What does all this mean? She notifies me when something out of the ordinary happens. Mona's a mix of pattern recognition software, facial recognition, speech interpretation, traffic monitoring, and fractal modeling. Wow. Yeah, just wait till we get quantum computers. Shit's gonna get real. Real. So, in Rabbits, one of the main reasons to be paranoid resonates with some of the post-9-11 surveillance politics in the US, with acts such as, such as the Patriot Act and the founding of Homeland Security, um, government agencies can easily listen into our everyday conversations. And at the same time, algorithms play an important role in uncovering the Rabbits conspiracy. Um, and this DIY surveillance guy, Batman, also gestures towards, towards the future. Uh, quantum computers will be even um, more capable in thinking of thinking about our actions and perhaps even predicting leading to some kind of, um, I don't know, what's the movie again, um, where, where sort of every behavior is predicted. In any case, um, not great. And also one of the other technological aspects of rabbits is the intersection between alternate reality games and VR. From an old speech related to the rabbits manifesto, Carly reads the following. How is virtual reality going to change our lives? It might start with games and gamers, but that technology is going to end up on our faces, in our brains, and eventually in our blood. We won't be escaping or pausing our lives to play games. The games will be an integrated part of everyday life. I imagine a world in the very near future where the amount of income generated by playing these integrated games will overtake every other industry. This opens a Pandora's box of global currency concerns, privacy issues, and the mental and physical well-being of the human race. It's certainly an interesting time 
to be alive. As such, Revit raises questions about the integrated nature of technology in our everyday lives and how it may harm us in ways that we don't understand. Welcome to Nightville does not necessarily take issue with technology as such, but rather by the dangers posed by tech companies. So throughout the show, Nightville's greatest opponents has been StrexCorp Synergist Incorporated. The single objective of StrexCorp is to buy and control everything, in which they succeed to the point where they own everything in the town and all of Nightville's citizens become StrexCorp employees. The corporation then controls all citizens' living conditions and frantically increases work hours to further push productivity. Consider, for example, this piece of propaganda. And now the community calendar. Tuesday is work day. All StrexCorp owned homes and businesses, which is to say all homes and businesses, should work all day in their most productive and enthusiastic way. Work is how we all become better people. You do want to become a better person, right? You want to be valued. You want to have value. You want your value, numerically speaking, to increase? Then work. It's work day. Strexcorp's rhetoric has a familiar ring to it. It perfectly reiterates the neoliberal ideology that we become valuable through our work and that work should give us fulfillment. Interestingly, while, while the citizens of Nightville tolerate their inept government, um, they start, do start a rebellion against Strexcorp. As uh, you know, Cecil puts it, we may be controlled by a city council and a vague yet menacing government agency and chemtrails and a secret order of reptile kings and a mysterious light that hover above us, but we will not be controlled by a smiling god. And the smiling god here um, refers to Strexcorp's motto, which is just kind of believe in the smiling god. And a Reddit user suggested that it was not that hard to guess what this refers to. So if you're on a computer right now or on your phone, you might want to type in the Amazon logo in the search bar. Um, and if you then look at it, it's not hard to imagine a smiling god. And as such, Nightville really tries to pose this critique of large corporations such as Amazon. Um, and if StrexCorp is kind of the classic evil operation or the Amazon, they also have this arc about hegemony. Um, and hegemony, obviously a play on hegemony, uh, is kind of the, the new kind of tech evil corporation, but more of the social media equivalent of it. So, Egemony is a tech startup dreamfluencers company that wants to drink Nightville's soul. And to do that, Egemony sends out one of their uh, corporate prize contestants, sweepstakes, buzz marketing street teams to dreamfluence anyone who stands in their way. <laughs> so, when it appears that money gives Egemony the means to actually drink Nightville's soul, uh, Nightville, as a response, abolishes money and moves to a love based economy. However, Hegemony finds new ways to make profit, putting love into an app and monetizing it. So the Hegemony episodes thus show how problematic and predatory late-stage capitalism is, but also its versatility and how it endlessly adapts to gain profits. Now we kind of know what paranoia sounds like thematically. Um, what do paranoid podcasts talk about? How do they understand the world, etc. However, in this last part, I want to look into how these podcasts are produced aesthetically. So how do they use the affordances of the podcast to the fullest? Um, I would say that the form of the podcast is especially effective in conveying paranoia. So the consumption via headphones literally gives listeners voices in their heads. And their long listen-on-demand format allows for complex narrative structures. So these podcasts use sound, music, and the human voice to build immersive worlds. And uh, the ambient music surely sets the tone. And what Nightfall does especially well is that it makes use of the podcast status as a secondary medium to sort of connect the fictional world of the podcast to the real world. And I think one of the best examples of this is the episode titled All Right. Important technical note first off. This episode is intended to be listened to with headphones. For the best experience, do that. Cool. It's all right. All right. 
all right, all right. Welcome to Night Vale. Listeners, your headphones are not malfunctioning. I assume you were wearing headphones, as instructed by that sheriff's secret police mandate last week. This was for your protection and safety, and also to boost headphone sales now that the city has acquired a local headphone manufacturer as a municipal asset. I am reporting today only from your right ear. Or, if you have difficulty hearing in that ear, simply reverse your headphones so that you can easily hear me with one ear. Please remove the headphone from the ear that you are not hearing me from. I need you to be able to hear the world around you. This is vitally important to your continued survival. Okay, so I'm not sure how this translated to your particular device. I'm not the most experienced podcast editor, but, you know... I might become that when, uh, as this series evolves. But in the remainder of the episode, um, the sound switches sides a couple of times. And Cecil, who assumes that the listener is in a public place, actually encourages the listener to put the finger in their ear, um, only to exclaim later, oh, oh no, somebody saw you put your finger in your ear. That is so embarrassing. Nightfall also fully uses the possibility that the audio affords Listen, for example, to this segment and pay particular attention to the background noises. There will be lots of things happening. Planned things. Strategic things. There will be some special guests that are not teenage fugitives named Tamika Flynn. She won't be there and thus could not possibly organize any community insurgency at all. She's a fugitive, wanted for destruction of Strexcorp property, and we wouldn't want her to show up and ruin our parade day by leading a helicopter rebellion against what she calls, her words, not mine, a dystopian corpocratic regime. Nope. I would never want to bring down the malevolent... (laughs) Benevolent corporation that owns our station. Perhaps you have noticed some strange beeps while you were listening. This is no technological glitch. Hidden in the background is a Morse code and messages like uh, Tamika needs you. Rise up, Nightville. Radiant Canyon in one hour. Go to Radiant Canyon now, 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 now. So. These are just some ways in which there are sort of, even within the audio, hidden messages um, that encourages their listeners to go out there, look for clues, and try to figure out what was sort of, what you can sort of listen to between the lines. And um, these are some of the new ways in which Nightville uses the medium to transmit paranoia. Although, I mean, are they really new? Um, I guess that's something that I'll need to figure out. Um, and yeah, that also relates to sort of the open-endedness that I talked about earlier. Um, and Rabbits also has this in the end, like, you don't really know what actually happened. So, um, Serial ends kind of on an open note, and Rabbits kind of does the same. Um, can we really trust our perception? Is it really true what we hear? I didn't know what to think. If I say that I believe in multi-dimensional slips capable of realigning our world or universe, am I crazy? Was the story I just told you corrupt? False? My imagination gone wild? What about the moonrise? My brother showed me that image when I was just a kid. And there were just so many things that couldn't be explained away. 
And I would absolutely know if I was being drugged and manipulated, wouldn't I? So just to sort of um, end on, I don't know, end this, this sort of initial exploration of Paranoid Podcasts, um, my conclusion will definitely be inconclusive. Uh, it's very much the beginning of my project, and uh, I guess one thing that I can say is that I'm very much struck by the different ways in which these fictional podcasts convey paranoia. Um, they seem to build on some of the existing, existing conspiracy tropes, um, but like... One of the other things that they talk about is the rise of tech companies, uh, the incorporation of technology into our lives, um, and the surveillance policies that have, you know, been put, in, put into place after 9/11. Um, and also, what is curious about podcasts themselves is that they are very much complicit because they depend on the technologies they, pro they sort of problematize. Um, they rely on large platforms like Stitcher and Apple and Spotify to disseminate their material and they use the internet to gain followers and fund their projects. And in that sense, I am also complicit because I am out here doing the exact same thing. But um, I guess one thing that has hopefully become clear, uh, at least in this sort of initial exploration, is that the podcast is a very effective medium to convey paranoia. Both the sort of long format allows us to explore multiple angles and take a deep dive into the conspiracies that sort of drive the narratives of these podcasts. And um, yeah, uh, the use of headphones also literally gives listeners voices in their heads, um, but also plays around with the environment that they're in. And um, maybe that's also what I'm doing right now, uh, creating some paranoia um, in your own heads. But yeah, I would encourage you to sort of also, uh, I'm, I'm kind of trying to do the thing that I'm also analyzing, um, but I would also encourage you to, you know, go out there um, and see what, where you can sort of find this conspiracy culture and definitely sort of get back to me. Um, definitely send an email if you find anything or if you want to talk about any of the things that I've just talked about. I'm very happy to continue talking about it. And uh, yeah. I hope to see you in future episodes. Um, and some thanks need to be said, obviously. Uh, the artwork for this podcast is made by uh, Krista Langhaar. And she's really, yeah, she makes a lot of different artworks, some of which you can also find on uh, the Arts Bunker. And uh, the music is made by uh, Stein van Nijnalte, um, also known as Stuus or uh, Pyro. And he makes a range of different uh, beats and materials. And I'm very thankful that he helped me out in making the sound for this podcast. So thank you very much. Stay tuned and more on podcasts as this PhD and podcast series develops. Bye.